Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On April Fool's Day of 1984, news spread through the grapevine that music icon Marvin Gaye was dead. When people realized that his murder was no prank and that no amount of sexual healing could bring him back, many were left wondering, what's going on? This is Monsters. Marvin Pence Gay Jr. was born on April 2, 1939 in Washington, D.C. He was the second son of Marvin Sr. and Alberta Gay, who would go on to have two more daughters. Marvin Jr. also had a half-sibling from Alberta's previous relationship. Despite living in the nation's capital with the White House just three miles away, the apartment Marvin was raised in didn't have running water or electricity and their low income meant there was often not enough food to go around. But let's not get this story twisted. While we know that Marvin would go on to become famous for his singing, this is not a rags-to-riches story or the inspiring tale of a boy from the projects who was raised in a loving home and who overcame his poor upbringing to make a better life for himself. This is the story of an abused child whose only means of escape was through music. Alberta worked long hours as a housemaid, and Marvin Sr. worked as a church minister in a strict branch of the Pentecostal church known as the House of God. Pentecostalism focuses primarily on a direct relationship with God, which can only come from being baptized in the holy waters. After being baptized, a person is considered to be the embodiment of the Holy Spirit, and this gives them supernatural powers like healing, the ability to speak in tongues, and the power to perform miracles. What makes the house of God unique is that they don't believe in celebrations of Jesus' birth or the crucifixion, so they see Easter and Christmas as sacrilegious to their faith. They also don't believe in Sunday being the holy day, and instead, they hold church services on Saturday. In the bishop's household, that meant observing Sabbath from Friday night and all day Saturday. During those hours, the family was not allowed to have any interaction with the outside world. No leaving the house except for church reasons. No one was allowed to work on Saturday and the children weren't allowed to play. Instead, everyone had to pray and praise God. Marvin Sr. had been a member of the church since childhood and had been ordained as a bishop before he met Alberta, and they started a family. She had no say in the decision to raise their children in the same faith, as Pentecostalism also preaches the superiority of men and their rights over women, especially when it comes to man and wife. Her role was to raise the children and support her husband's decisions no matter what. This would serve to become a critical factor in how Marvin Jr.'s life played out. 
Because of Marvin Sr.'s position in the church, he was considered to have the gift of healing. But the congregation didn't know that inside the four walls of his home, the bishop was doing anything but healing. Marvin Sr. expected all of his children to conform to all of the traditional laws of his faith, and he was a strict disciplinarian. But none of that explains how he treated Marvin Jr. From as early as Marvin could remember, his father treated him differently from his siblings. He was always punished more violently, and the bishop seemed to have higher expectations for him than he did for any of the other children. When they stepped out of line, they were given a stern talking to or had their privileges taken away. But when Marvin did anything that the bishop disapproved of, he would be violently beaten or whipped with a belt or a stick. He was consistently berated and told he was useless and that he would never amount to anything. It was more than a dislike. It was as if Marvin Sr. despised his own son. For Marvin, something as simple as leaving his hairbrush in the wrong place or arriving home from school one minute late would be enough to set his father off. All of the children had issues with late bedwetting, which can be a strong indicator that they're struggling with a toxic home environment. But where Marvin's siblings would cop some verbal abuse, Marvin would be beaten. Despite his mother and his siblings getting on their knees and begging the bishop to stop, the violence towards Marvin would only ever end when he said so. And usually, his saying so only happened when he could see visible welts forming on Marvin's skin. It wasn't only physical abuse that the bishop had mastered when it came to Marvin. He had a way of drawing out the fear of the beating to make it almost as bad as the beating itself. When Marvin did something wrong, his father would tell him he was going to get a beating for what he had done, but the beating wouldn't come straight away. Instead, Marvin would be sent to his room and told to take off his clothes and wait for the bishop to deliver his retribution, but it could have been minutes or hours before he would actually come into the room to do it. In the meantime, Marvin would be standing naked in his room waiting for the inevitable beating. On top of that, the bishop would make sure his son could hear his belt buckle jangling outside of the door or the sound of his whip smacking on the floor as a kind of ominous jingle until the time came to use it against his son. What was particularly troublesome about Marvin's early life is that everyone who knew him knew what was being done to him. In fact, his own mother, Alberta, once stated, quote, My husband never wanted Marvin, and he never liked him. For some reason, he didn't love Marvin, and what's worse, he didn't want me to love Marvin either. Marvin wasn't very old before he understood that. The bishop's violence towards Marvin wasn't unpredictable, and it's something Alberta might have seen coming, given how the bishop treated her first son from a previous relationship. When Alberta and Marvin Sr. first began courting, she had recently had a child with a different man. Despite supposedly being a man of faith, when they married, the bishop told Alberta he wouldn't raise the child as his own. Instead, he demanded the infant be sent to live with Alberta's sister, who raised him from that day forward. While Alberta ultimately chose to stay with the bishop despite how he treated Marvin Jr., she did her best to protect her son from his father. She smothered him with extra care and attention whenever she had the chance, which wasn't all that often given that she worked long shifts to provide for the family. But a mother's love isn't enough to protect a boy from such unrelenting violence, and by the time Marvin was three, the damage to his young brain had already been done. As well as being the pastor of the church, the bishop was also a self-taught pianist who would accompany the worship team before giving his sermons. 
When Marvin was around four years old, he started to join in on singing during church services. Over time, as he grew in confidence, Marvin Jr. became the lead vocalist and the bishop accompanied him on piano. It was the only time that Marvin wasn't in fear of being hurt by his father, and the only time that he considered that maybe faith was what would bring them together and heal their relationship. It was clear to everyone who heard Marvin sing that he had a natural talent for music. It wasn't only his voice that was impressive. After years of watching his father, Marvin taught himself how to play the piano by ear. In the context of the church where Marvin was raised, his voice was seen as a gift from God to be used only for one purpose, to draw others into the faith. For years, the church had a hold over Marvin's voice and he wasn't allowed to sing anything other than gospel. Singing for any other purpose or in any other genre would have been considered secular or blasphemous. So while attending church was an easy escape from Marvin's violent home life, it was also another place where he was controlled and unable to be his true self. At some point during Marvin's teenage years, his singing began to win more praise than the bishop's own sermons. Things were already deeply fractured between father and son, but this shift made the situation infinitely worse. The bishop not only despised his son, but now he was someone to be envious of. Deep down, the bishop was driven by ego and he craved power, control, and respect. He liked being the head of the church and the head of the family and Marvin was becoming a threat to all of that. When the family would return home from services, the beatings and tirades became worse than ever. To make matters worse, things inside the church were beginning to change as well. The Church of the House of God had gone through some philosophical changes and they decided to elect a new senior apostle. Marvin Sr. was certain he would be appointed as he had been leading the congregation for years already, but the church chose someone else and the bishop's bruised ego was irreparably damaged. After that, Marvin Sr. began to pull away from the religion completely. For five years he sat at home drinking and cursing the church. There were no more church gatherings, no more Sabbaths, and no more singing at sermons for Marvin Jr. After such a long period away from the church, the seniors at the church decided that Marvin Sr. was no longer spiritually gifted enough to be called a bishop and he lost his so-called healing powers. On top of the violence and separation from the church, Marvin Sr. also had a reputation for something else. He was considered flamboyant and effeminate, and he had a propensity for wearing women's clothing. Marvin Jr. would later admit that this was something he had inherited from his father, though he denied that it had anything to do with his sexuality. He claimed that the same was true about his father. He denied that the bishop was homosexual, and said that his enjoyment of cross-dressing was simply because he liked women so much that he wanted to show the world the girlish side of himself. As an adult, Marvin could rationalize his enjoyment of wearing women's clothing, but as a child, the desire to cross-dress was incredibly confusing. On top of that, other children would make fun of his father's femininity, and even though Marvin hated his dad, he also deeply desired his father's approval, and he hated being mocked for something his father had done. It turns out that the ego and pride of his father had become Marvin's cursed inheritance. This was all going down during Marvin's formative teenage years while his body and voice were changing and by the time Marvin reached high school he had outgrown his father both physically and mentally. 
Although the family weren't attending services anymore, Marvin still believed that if you raised a hand to your father, he had every right to kill you. This meant he never fought back, at least physically. Instead, when he wanted to stir a reaction or take his anger out on the bishop, he went out of his way to piss him off. He began intentionally leaving things in the wrong place and coming home after curfew. The bishop could no longer hit him, but he would scream and yell, and neighbors recalled that not a week would go by without Marvin being kicked out or disowned by his father. Everyone in the projects knew about the bishop's temper, and Marvin would spend days and weeks on friends' and neighbors' couches until he decided to return home. When the family stopped going to services, Marvin lost the one place he felt safe through singing, and he became desperate to find his way out of his home environment permanently. This is why he signed up for the boxing, football, track, and basketball teams in hope that one of them would be his ticket to freedom. He also secretly hoped that doing more typically masculine things would prove to everyone that he was not like his father. The athletic endeavors didn't work out in Marvin's favor, but while he was in high school, he did get the chance to meet other teenagers who were passionate about singing. What was different about them was that they were allowed to sing in whatever style they wanted. They weren't constrained or restricted by religion, and finally, Marvin was able to test his voice in genres other than gospel. Together with some of his friends, Marvin formed a group called the DC Tones. It was the first time he had given himself permission to believe he was destined to use his voice for something other than worshipping God. The escape Marvin felt through singing was short-lived, and by the time he was 15, Marvin had become disenchanted with the world as a whole. It wasn't only his home life where he was experiencing violence. He was living in a time where racial discrimination was a daily occurrence. Despite growing up on Capitol Hill surrounded by lawmakers who should have been helping the disadvantaged, Marvin wasn't allowed to eat at certain diners or go to the movie theaters his white peers were allowed to visit. By then, the bishop had been out of the church for more than five years and hadn't made any attempt to get a job or support his family. In fact, all that he had achieved at the time was to develop a drinking problem. In Marvin's early years, the bishop had worked in the church, though the wages were paid more in spirituality than in money. This left Alberta as the primary income earner who was responsible for supporting a husband and five children on a domestic worker's salary. While her husband lay around at home all day, she left at four in the morning to clean the toilets in her wealthy clients' homes. She would then come home and have to clean her own while her husband beat and tormented her children. Before Marvin had reached the 11th grade, he decided he was done with education for good. He wanted to escape from his violent home life and also wanted to help his mother financially. He hoped and prayed that she would one day have the courage to leave his father, but until that day happened, he wanted to help support her. But Marvin didn't have a job and had no way to even support himself. He had very few options, so he took the first job that offered both income and housing. In 1956, Marvin joined the Air Force in the hopes that he could become a pilot. Even this decision was a disappointment to his father, who had told Marvin he wanted him to become a lawyer. However, life in the military wasn't all that different from life under the control of his father. He was away from home, but he wasn't free. He was told when to wake up and when to sleep, and what he was and wasn't allowed to do. So naturally, Marvin responded in the same way he had learned to with the bishop. When he was told to sit, he would stand. When he was told to cough, he would shout. He was punished more times than anyone could count, but it made little difference. In the end, Marvin faked a mental illness and was honorably discharged. 
his paperwork declared that he couldn't adjust to regimentation and authority. The only good thing that Marvin claimed to have come out of his time in the military was that he finally had sex for the first time, but even then it was with a prostitute, and it was far from what he had imagined it would be. On top of that, his strict religious upbringing continued to plague him and he felt immense guilt for wanting and then seeking sex. Nevertheless, this one encounter changed Marvin and he continued to use the services of sex workers for the rest of his life. He was once quoted as saying, I need prostitutes. They protect me from passion. Passions are dangerous. They cause you to lust after other men's wives. With his military service a failure and nothing to fall back on, Marvin was too ashamed to show his face around home. He felt like everything his father had told him about himself was true. He was useless and a failure and he would never amount to anything. Once again, his only escape was through music. He joined in with some friends who were also into the singing scene, and together they formed a quartet called the Marquis. This time, Marvin was determined to make it work. After doing the rounds as a group, they were approached by Bo Diddley, who was a musician and repped for a record label. He offered the Marquis a deal to produce their first and last single. When the record failed to make it to the charts, they were dropped as quickly as they had been picked up. The disappointment was crushing, but there was some hope when the co-founder of popular R&B group The Moon Glows hired the quartet as employees. He recommended they move from D.C. to Chicago and join his group to become Harvey and the new Moon Glows. This collaboration seemed to work for a time, and Marvin and his friends appeared as backing musicians for other established acts. But the work never amounted to anything more, and in 1960, the quartet split up and went their separate ways. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. After that, Marvin moved to Detroit, where he signed a contract to be a backing artist, where he played the drums and piano. It wasn't much, but it was steady work, and it meant he didn't have to return home to his father. In December of 1960, everything changed when Marvin performed at the home of the founder of Motown Records, Barry Gordy. Even then, Motown Records was representing the biggest names in soul music. The founder approached Marvin's agent, and soon after, Marvin was offered his first major deal. When Marvin signed the deal, he added an extra E to the end of his name for two reasons. First, he wanted to make it clear that he was not his father's son, but he also believed that adding an E made it sound more appealing and less associated with the other meaning of the word. In May of 1961, Marvin released his first single, Let Your Conscience Be Your Guide, with his first album released a month later. It was meant to be his big break and his first real taste of success, but the album flopped and Marvin was left to continue his work as a drummer and pianist for the other successful musicians. But that changed again in 1962 when Marvin appeared as the co-writer on the Marvelettes track Beachwood 45789. After that, Marvin was on a roll. His next single reached number 8 on the R&B charts, and his single Hitchhiker got to number 30 on the Hot 100. 
His second album followed in 1963 and he was invited to tour the United States amongst a series of other soul performers. In the same year, he married Anna Gordy, who was the sister of Barry Gordy who had signed Marvin just three years earlier. While they didn't have any children of their own, Anna's 16-year-old niece had given birth to a baby boy and Marvin and Anna adopted him as their own. They named him Marvin III. It was 1964 that Marvin began releasing the hits he's known for today, like Together, How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You, and duets including Ain't No Mountain High Enough and Ain't Nothing Like the Real Thing. In 1968, Marvin got his first taste of number one with his recording of I Heard It Through the Grapevine. After that, there was no stopping him, and when his next album sold millions of copies, he established himself as a legend in the soul, R&B, and Motown genres. In 1970, he had another smash hit with What's Going On, which Marvin wrote after witnessing police brutality at an anti-war rally. On the album that featured that song, Marvin received two Grammy nominations, though he didn't take home either award. That same year, he signed a million-dollar contract, which was the highest ever paid to a black recording artist at the time. By then, Marvin was performing at venues every night, earning $100,000 per performance, and it finally seemed like he had overcome his childhood abuse and become the success he wanted to be. But fame had done little to heal his trauma, and behind closed doors, Marvin was still battling demons of his own. His marriage to Anna had broken down, mostly due to his obsession with the teenage daughter of one of his musical collaborators. Janice Hunter was 17, and Marvin was 34 when they officially became a couple, but they had met when she was 16 years old. A few months later, she gave birth to their first child. At the same time, Marvin had developed a cocaine addiction and was being chased by the IRS for hundreds of thousands of dollars in unpaid taxes. In an attempt to avoid the tax man, he relocated to Maui and began work on a new album. But the drug addiction meant he couldn't focus on the project, and he shelved it before it was complete. Despite the tax debt, Marvin had managed to do the one thing he had promised himself he would do if he ever became rich and famous. He bought his parents a large home in Los Angeles and retired his mother so she would never have to work again. Things between Marvin and his father hadn't changed over the years, and Marvin tried to avoid him as much as he could, but he cared deeply about his mother. In 1980, Marvin made a surprise announcement that he would be going on tour for the first time in four years. His decision wasn't because he was in a better place or because touring would keep him in the spotlight. No, it was because Marvin was desperate for money. After Janice had given birth to their second child, she was threatening to leave him and he was already paying thousands of dollars a month in alimony to Anna from his first divorce. Then there was the tax bill, which had exploded to $4.5 million, or $14 million in today's money. For his whole life, Marvin was fundamentally opposed to taxes. This stemmed mostly from his experience with racism and the lack of government support that his parents had when he was growing up. When the tour was over and the money was in the bank, Marvin moved to London permanently to further avoid being chased by the IRS. Just a year later in 1981, Janice followed through on her threats and the couple divorced. Marvin's drug addiction had become all-consuming and his penchant for prostitutes and other women was equally destructive to their short-lived marriage. Not long after the papers were signed, a friend of Marvin's from his early recording years encouraged him to get professional help. 
Marvin agreed and moved to Belgium to undergo treatment for his addiction. The time out of the spotlight seemed to work well for him and he put in the work to get sober. Finally, after years of instability, Marvin seemed to have his life back on track. In a sign of his promising recovery, Marvin split from Motown and signed with CBS. In 1981, he released perhaps one of his most momentous tracks, Sexual Healing. That song spent a record 10 weeks at number one and gave Marvin his first two Grammy Awards. He released track after track of top hits and it felt like the Marvin Gaye the world had come to know and love was back. When asked about his inspiration for making music, Marvin commented, quote, I don't make records for pleasure. I did when I was a younger artist, but I don't today. I record so that I can feed people what they need, what they feel. Hopefully, I record so that I can help someone overcome a bad time. What Marvin didn't know at the time was that he was headed for a bad time of his own. While reclaiming his fame had improved his life, it had also brought back a familiar foe in his life, the cocaine addiction. In 1983, Marvin set out on his sexual healing tour and from the beginning, things didn't go as planned. The relentless schedule left him hunting for copious quantities of his two favorite things, drugs and women. He was constantly trying to get out of performances after drug-fueled paranoia left him confined in his hotel room and his interactions with women began to take on an edge of violence. In 1983, Marvin moved into the home he had bought for his parents. Alberta had recently undergone kidney surgery and Marvin told his mother he would help look after her. By then, things between Alberta and the bishop were already tense after years of him treating their children terribly and refusing to financially support his family. With all of the children now grown and living lives of their own, there was nothing left to bind his parents together. His proclivity for vodka had turned into full-blown alcoholism, which compounded his already vile personality. And in all of the years since he had left the church, the bishop had never held down a job for more than a couple of years at a time. If it hadn't been for Marvin buying them a house and paying their expenses, Alberta would have never been able to stop working. But that wasn't even the worst of it. The great godly bishop had also had an affair a few years earlier, which had resulted in the birth of a fifth child. All the while, he still proclaimed to be a man of faith and expected his children to meet his impossibly high expectations. Hypocrite much? When Marvin arrived, his parents were sleeping in separate rooms because the bishop refused to move out of the house so he wouldn't get cut off from his cash cow. Things were bad between Alberta and the bishop, but they weren't as bad as things were between father and son. When Marvin was young, his father repeatedly told him that he would amount to nothing. But all of a sudden, when his son became rich and famous, the bishop acted like Marvin was his protege and that all of his success was thanks to his guiding hand. In public, the bishop used Marvin's name as a source of currency to gain access to circles and places he would never have been able to enter otherwise. In one interview, he even went so far as to comment, quote, it was important that I have a male child. A namesake is what I wanted. The day he was born, I felt he was destined for greatness. I thanked God for Marvin. I knew he was a special child. But at home, the bishop was the same bitter, angry, judgmental person that he had been. As soon as Marvin arrived at his parents' home, he locked himself inside his bedroom and barely came out. 
Friends from the music industry always tried to get Marvin to come out or visit the studio for a session, but he always declined their offers. His drug use escalated, and a trail of women was in and out of the house. Some were groupies, some were sex workers, and some were both. But it wasn't only Marvin's drug addiction that kept him locked up. He didn't want to see his father or witness the effects the bishop had had on his mother. Meanwhile, Alberta desperately tried to convince her son to stop taking drugs and get professional help, but Marvin always refused. He promised that each time would be the last time, but it never was, and he promised each girl would be the last girl, but she never was. Marvin had also become extremely paranoid. He constantly spoke about suicide and claimed that people were after him. He never explained who was out to get him or why, but he spent hours peeking through the blinds watching the yard like he was expecting someone to come for him at any minute. On the rare occasion that he did leave the house, he wrapped himself in four thick coats and couldn't focus long enough to put his shoes on the right feet. Just four days before the event that changed everything, Marvin attempted to take his own life by jumping out of a car that was driving at 60 miles an hour. And then he got himself a gun. Sounds like perfect timing. April 1st, 1984 started out like any other April Fools, except that what was about to go down in the gay household was anything but a joke. Marvin Sr. had misplaced a letter from an insurance company. That's right, everything that was about to happen was over a letter from an insurance company. He screamed up the stairs at his wife, who at that moment was lying on the bed in Marvin's room, with him curled up next to her. In a low and soothing voice, she was whispering verses from the Bible in an attempt to relax his troubled mind. The bishop's voice broke through the calm moment, and Marvin yelled back that if his father had something to say to Alberta, he should do it in person. His father stormed up the stairs and burst into his room, carrying on with his ranting. Marvin immediately jumped to his mother's defense and told his father to get out of his room. When the bishop refused, Marvin pushed him out the door and into the hallway and added a few extra knocks for good measure. You might remember how Marvin and his siblings grew up knowing that if a son hurt his father, that was good enough reason for the father to strike them down. Permanently. It was a belief that their tormentor used as a way to protect himself from retaliation. No matter how many years had passed or how far removed from the church the bishop was, it was a belief he was about to put into practice. Alberta tried to separate her husband and her son, but she was weak from her surgery and she was physically no match for either of them, especially in their aggravated states. Eventually, the bishop walked away from the confrontation on his own and returned to his bedroom while Marvin and Alberta returned to reading the Bible. But it wasn't over. The bishop came back out of his room carrying a 38 caliber revolver. This was the same gun Marvin had recently brought home. During the height of Marvin's paranoia, he had given the weapon to his father. Alberta didn't want any guns in the house, but Marvin had convinced her they needed it in the house for protection. No one really imagined that what they needed, and perhaps what they had needed since Marvin was born, was protection from Marvin Sr. himself. The bishop opened the door to Marvin's room, pointed the gun at his son, and pulled the trigger. The bullet ripped through Marvin's chest, and he slumped from the bed to the floor. Its trajectory perforated his right lung, his heart, diaphragm, liver, stomach, and kidney. Blood spilled out of his chest, and the bishop took two more steps toward Marvin, but he wasn't checking on his son. 
Instead, he lifted the weapon, aimed it directly at his son, and pulled the trigger at point-blank range into his shoulder. Alberta was understandably horrified at having just witnessed the murder of her son, but she was simultaneously in fear of her own life. She ran from the room screaming and begged her husband not to shoot her. Meanwhile, Marvin's brother Frankie, who lived in a separate house on the property, heard the gunshots but initially thought it was a car backfiring. When he heard the screams, he ran towards the house and found Alberta sobbing. He shot Marvin. He's killed my boy. Twenty minutes later, the police arrived to find the bishop sitting calmly on the porch. They found the gun under Marvin Sr.'s pillow where he had hidden it after the shooting. Many people didn't take it seriously as news of Marvin's murder spread around the world. It had occurred on April Fool's Day after all, but they quickly realized that his death was no prank when Marvin's own father was announced as his killer. The day after Marvin's murder would have been his 45th birthday. Marvin Sr. denied murdering his son and claimed that he shot Marvin Jr. in self-defense. Then he stated that he hadn't realized there were bullets in the weapon and he believed they were either blanks or BB pellets. Most notably, when he was asked by investigators if he loved his son, he responded, quote, Let's say I don't dislike him. Marvin's siblings would go on to claim that his death was a bizarre act of premeditated suicide. He wanted to die, but he wasn't able to do it himself. In their opinion, Marvin was well aware that if he provoked his father enough, he would eventually kill him and Marvin simply forced his hand that day. While Marvin Sr. was in custody awaiting trial, Alberta filed for divorce. When it came time to face justice for killing his son, the bishop's lawyers argued that the drugs in Marvin's system had made him violent and he had provoked the attack by pushing his father around before the shooting took place. As a result of this argument, Marvin Sr. was granted a plea bargain where he pleaded no contest to voluntary manslaughter. He was given a six-year suspended sentence as well as five years of probation. During his sentencing, the bishop stated, quote, If I could bring him back, I would. I was afraid of him. I thought I was going to get hurt. I didn't know what was going to happen. I'm really sorry for everything that happened. I loved him. I wish he could step through this door right now. I'm paying the price now. Wow. Way to make it all about you. When you take into account the history that the father had with his own son, it's safe to say that Marvin Gaye Sr. was a monster far before he became a killer. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. 
Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.